0: I want to do it all together. I, I kind of philosophically, I suppose, I want to be part of nature. I, I don't want to destroy it in my fields and then somehow compensate for that somewhere else.
1: Hey, folks, welcome to the latest episode of the Ecosystem Member podcast. Today's guest is Guy Singh Watson, the founder of Riverford Organic Farmers. For our non-UK listeners who maybe haven't heard of Guy, he's a bit of a business and farming legend in the UK. After growing up on his family's dairy farm and then becoming a management consultant, Guy actually returned to the farm and created Riverford Organic Farmers, which in two stages he actually completely sold to employees, probably for less than he could have gotten on the public market, so the company could stay true to its values. I've been a subscriber to Riverford's veg boxes since I got to England a few years ago, and just so you're aware, Riverford is in no way paying or sponsoring uh, for this episode. Guy's just created a company with full respect for nature, and I really admire his individual leadership on key issues related to healthy food production for people and planet. Without further delay, here's the latest episode of the Ecosystem Member Podcast with Guy Singh Watson, founder of Riverford Organic Farmers. Today on the Ecosystem Member Podcast, we have Guy Singh-Watson, farmer and founder of Riverford Organic Farmers. Thanks for joining us today, Guy.
0: Very happy to be here, Rick.
1: I want to start with something I found on the Riverford website. It talks about how you still spend more time in the fields than the boardroom. So I also read that you're a former management consultant, and, and now you're a farmer and entrepreneur and have been for the last couple of decades. So how do you define your relationship with nature?
0: It's just what makes me feel good. I like being outside. I I, I find it very difficult having established and developed a business which ended up employing over a thousand people, now co-owners of that business, that that inevitably involves a lot of meetings which tend to be inside. And I find that just doesn't really work for me. It doesn't feed my soul. I completely acknowledge that they are a requirement of running a large organisation. You have to have structure and systems and good communication and everything. You know, somewhat reluctantly, I acknowledge the need for those things, but they don't work for me. I mean, I, I need to be outside. I'm very much a, a doing person. I like making things. And, uh, you know, when I wake up in the morning, when I woke up this morning, I was thinking about the hedge that I'm laying and it's the chainsaw sharp and how I'm going to weave those branches together. And and that's, I don't know, I just I, I like making things. I really like being outside and doing that with nature. So, that you know, that's on the farm. Um, making stuff, repairing stuff, building an irrigation system, whatever. And, and, and if I'm not working, you know, I'll be sitting on my surfboard somewhere. And um, yeah, that's that's just what I like doing.
1: One of the reasons I reached out to have you on the podcast, there was a, a piece you wrote in the Wicked Weeks uh, newsletter and website about how your view of the land from your surfboard in your home of Devon has changed since you were a kid. Being so connected to the land, you know, spending time outside, being a farmer, but also a surfer. How have you seen seen things change, both as a farmer and a surfer in your lifetime?
0: Well, I think we're all conditioned to think that things aren't changing. I mean, you know, there's this thing of baseline readjustment. You just get used to what it was yesterday as opposed to what it was five years or 50 years ago. But if I do, you know, looking at the landscape, you know, I think and I remember what was planted in that field 50 years ago. And you think, oh, my God, you know how much things have changed. And, you know, my favourite beach is a very rocky little cove um, where I'm almost always the only person there. And I've been going there. My parents used to take me there between milkings, you know, 60 years ago, I suppose. (laughs) So I paddle out and I look back at the landscape and on those very small fields, they used to grow early potatoes and cauliflowers. There were, you know, crab and lobster boats pulled up on the beach where I, you know, jump in with my surfboard. And, uh, you know, it has all just changed so much. And you can look at that landscape and it tells you a story, you know, of the enclosures that were formed. Actually, it was one of the earliest areas in the UK to be enclosed, to have field boundaries, to fall into um, private ownership and you know you can see those boundaries still there today and 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 you can sort of plot the rise and fall of of uh, british farming i suppose and the fact that food now is only the actual production of food is now 1.6% of gdp which kind of implies that you know each farmer has to feed i don't know 60 70 people or so you know and you don't do that with the sort of agriculture that was was happening you know when i was a child so you know things have changed hugely And I feel um, I feel very sad for the most part, the way it's changed, you know, know, greater scale, greater intensification, you know, pollution, soil loss, biodiversity loss. And of course, you know, climate change, agriculture has certainly contributed its share. We could argue about how much, but, you know, most people would say somewhere between 15 and 30 percent. You know, the agricultural policy in the UK is it's just, I've got to say, over my lifetime, mostly it has been a disaster. It's particularly disastrous at the moment.
1: And I think most people don't necessarily first think of a, a farm as nature. Yet I'm sure, you know, in your experience and some of the folks that I've talked to in the past in the food industry who, who are deeply connected with farmers, you know, they talk about healthy farms as thriving ecosystems. And I know you're really passionate about supporting farmers. So can we have this sort of healthy relationship with our food and the people who produce it without having a healthy relationship with nature
0: well i think there're two there's a sort of divide you know and amongst the people that i respect and read and listen to there there're two schools of thought really i mean one is that yeah we try and coexist with nature you know try and produce food in an environment um, you know, where we can harbor biodiversity and sequester carbon and and control runoff of water and so on and that's very much my camp you know that i I want to do it all together i I kind of philosophically I suppose I want to be part of nature i I don't want to destroy it in my fields and then somehow compensate for that somewhere else. but there is another school of thought supported by. You know, a lot of people who I really respect, people like uh, George Monbiot, who who lives locally, you know, is that we should really go for an uber-intensive production. And by doing that, um, perhaps, you know, free up other land, which can be rewilded. And, you know, I can see the argument for that in some cases. But, you know, we live in the Anthropocene. I mean, we have humankind has shaped our climate our biodiversity and even now our our geology and and i i just think we just need to accept that and but but also accept that we are part of nature we're deeply embedded within it and just learn to be a lot smarter about it so i really like the intimate association of a complex farm with many enterprises, you know, which probably includes some animals, but not as many as we have on most farms today, but perhaps in smaller scale enterprises. And that, you know, as an intimate juxtaposition with nature, so are corridors, you know, we have these huge hedgerows in, in my part of in Devon, uh, they, they're they a phenomenon, really. They, they, they are, you know, and we're letting ours grow up and outwards. So they form these fantastic corridors for wildlife without having any significant impact on production. In fact, you know, they provide cover, they provide heating fuel for, you know, the farm and so on. I strongly believe that the two can coexist together, but it's going to be much more complex. It's going to require you know, a lot more skills from our farmers who uh, will have to go back to, I mean, I look back with admiration on my parents and my grandparents' generation. You know, my father used to keep sheep, chickens, pigs, he used to grow grain, and the dairy herd was always, you know, the biggest thing on the farm. But, you know, and and they used to have cider and make, you know, cider orchards and make cider. And, and, you know, they had to know how to prune an apple tree, how to maintain the sheep grazing underneath. I mean, the level of skill was just extraordinary and those skills have just been lost from our countryside the only the only skill that can be afforded is the skill that makes allows you to make money out of a, essentially a single enterprise farm normally you know growing monocrops and uh, or a highly industrialized form of animal agriculture I, I do feel very sad and i do lament the direction that british farming has taken and and it's i'm you know pretty much The same around the world. It hasn't moved as fast in continental Europe as it has in the UK. I think in the US, you probably have the um, pride of having the very worst agriculture anywhere in the world. (laughs) In terms of what you've done to nature, um, it's uh, it's from what I see, it's pretty devastating. And uh, maybe because the US is so vast, everyone feels that they can, um, you know, there's plenty of space. And I'm sure there are spaces for nature. But yeah, certainly the agricultural production has been is you've 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 sort of led the world, and I'm not sure you've led it in the right direction.
1: Yeah, I think uh, amongst the many things that the United States has exported uh, culturally and such around the world, m- you know, the McDonald's and Starbucks of the world, there also have been uh, quite quite harmful agricultural practices, I think, that... Uh, that have um, led people down the wrong path. And it's it's sort of interesting because I, I was reading this about this project you're engaging with on your, on your own farm to plant hazelnuts and walnuts. And you note that it's not actually about economics. It's not about that point that you just made about, you know, making money, but it's actually about the biodiversity. So, you know, as a successful business person and, you know, you you clearly care about the nature and the environment. Like how how do you balance the two? How do you balance that biodiversity with the need to make money and support, you know, sort of the feeding a nation in a lot of ways, I guess.
0: Okay, well, I mean, about 20 years ago, probably 25 years ago, I went to Uganda actually to visit some farmers that I had contacts with there. And, and, you know, most of the agricultural practice was pretty upsetting, you know, there was still a lot of burning of bush to grow crops and stuff, but there was also the best agriculture I've seen anywhere in the world. These sort of smallholder farmers, typically one to two acres, you know, multi-canopied, approach you know and obviously you know it's right on the tropics in southern uganda at least there's plenty of rainfall it's just unbelievable how thick, quickly things grow and that left me you know appreciating you know just how productive a more natural system that maintained ground cover and used multiple canopies and in mixed animals and and crops together just how productive that could be in the case in uganda 20 times more productive than the monocultures next door by my calculations and I came back, and I was put on my own farm, and i and i um I suppose I've just slowly that influenced my thinking quite a lot. And I've slowly started trying to look for forms of agriculture that sort of mimic that. and and planting the the hazelnuts and walnuts in quite widely spaced rows um with animals grazing underneath. i I, I think we can get the same amount of um you know production from the animals, and in terms of edible protein about four times as much from the nut trees as well so the the whole system will be five times as productive it will sequester considerable amounts of carbon i don't think anyone can accurately calculate how much but it will certainly sequester carbon it will certainly harbor greater biodiversity will certainly get less runoff from the fields and it just you know just seems to be a win-win-win but there are the reason why it's not a commercial system is because we are generally a bit outside of the climatic zone for those nuts, but obviously with climate change and the lifetime of the trees, I'm anticipating that we'll fall comfortably within them. Um, though who knows exactly what will happen with climate change. So, but they'd be because I'm not doing what my neighbors are doing, and I and I'm doing it in an you know, everywhere in the world, even nut production, even a perennial crop has moved towards much shorter-lived monocultures with a scorched earth approach to underneath to to mainly to facilitate harvest you know the trees are often now irrigated you know even what is a perennial crop which should be pretty environmentally benign we've managed to humankind and the ingenuity of agriculture has managed to turn even that into an environmental disaster and i know again you have that in the states um you know with the almond production which people talk about a lot but the same is going with olives and almonds and hazelnuts moving them into you know uber intensive orchards where they where everything can be more easily mechanized but it's turning something which should be you know, a positive thing into into a negative thing. So I'm trying to grow nuts in a different way where they will be there for longer, they're wider spaced, there will be more biodiversity, but that does mean it's quite challenging how we're going to harvest the nuts because the ground won't be as even. And actually I've chosen to plant them on a really stupid, stupidly steep field, you know, with a 25% gradient, which I certainly was a mistake. <laughs> but uh, um, because I was trying to prove that this is, This is third grade agricultural land, which is no use to anything else, but it can be productive. We don't need to just rewild all this land. It can be farmed. And I was trying to sort of show that there was a a path that livestock producers could take to a more environmentally friendly, you know, less methane emitting uh, form of agriculture. And the reason I've been able to do that and take those risks is because I made my money, really, if I'm honest, I love farming, but I made my money, you know, selling vegetables and in the end after 35 years I made my money by managing a brand and that's how everyone makes their money you know no one makes their money in this world producing anything you know they make money by selling stuff and then they make money by selling it at a premium price by by branding it and you know that's just much as I kind of lament it i mean that is that's the reality of the world but i am at least using the money that i've made to try and you know put it back into farming and in in a good way so i hope i hope that in my remaining years that i will prove that that system can work and ideally it'll be a system that other people can benefit from and use on their farms locally in reality i think there's a hell of a lot of thinking and talking to be done to define what good farming is and actually I suspect it's going to be very difficult to define it because it will be very very locally specific depending on you know your topography on your soils on your climate on your culture on the food that people want to eat locally all those things will define what good farming is and it will be very different you know where I farm even from the east of England let alone the US or Uganda or
1: how do we manage that or disseminate that information when we're thinking about more regional food systems? Like how do we make sure everyone um, has the knowledge, but also access to markets and ways to sustain a living when it does look like it might need to be a balance of approaches in a very regional food system. Like how do we make that work for farmers?
0: Uh, Yeah. Well, that's um, something I spend quite a lot of time thinking about. I mean, essentially, you know, how are you going to pay, for reskilling and adding a complexity back into farming, which requires those skills. And that probably, certainly, I mean, around, on the landscape around me, that is not going to be large scale farming because, you know, ours, you know, is very small. You know, steep fields running into valleys. Every field is different. I mean, the soil type changes every ten meters, and so on. You cannot farm it like a sort of prairie. It just it just it just won't work. So, it needs to be farmed in a smaller scale way. So, how do you guarantee those smaller scale farmers a reasonable living? Uh, you know, so such that if someone's skilled and knows what they're doing, they can. Make, and and it is very very difficult because you know I come back to that point that agriculture. You know, at farm gate prices generates certainly less than 2% of GDP, uh, which means, you know, it's all got to be done very, very cheaply. And it's hard to do that on a small scale because on a small scale, you don't have the benefits of, you know, mechanization and so on. So does that mean people are going to have to pay more for their food? I I hope that's not the case. The reality is that in my lifetime, the, the, the amount that a farmer, and I'm talking about vegetables here because that's really what I know about, when I started, I used to get somewhere between a third and 40%, so high 30s of the retail pound went back to the farmer for vegetables. We're now down to 25% and it's, and it's slipping. Now that may not seem in 30, 35 years a huge change, but it bloody well is if you're a farmer, you know, 34 years ago, you were getting 50% more for your produce, essentially. Well, that makes a huge difference about how you run your farm. So, I mean, I would love to think that somehow we got, why is it that the primary producer, you know, always has to accept a smaller and smaller and smaller part of of the retail pound know all gets sucked out of our economy and funneled into the pockets of people who own google and facebook and people who own property and shares as opposed to people who actually do something tangibly bloody useful with their life but yeah how we reward farmers properly in a world where their income as i say is less than two percent of gdp i'm sure it'd be less than that Mm -hmm. in in the states Yet, we're contributing to, let's say, 20% of climate change and over 50% of loss of biodiversity. I mean, clearly, our agriculture needs to be shaped not by, you know, I would say, laissez-faire, neoliberal, free market forces. It needs to be shaped by uh, intelligent, well-considered policy that that balances the needs of food and, and food security, which we don't, you know, we import, At least 40 percent of our food in the uk so we're certainly not food secure it could be farming could address you know climate change and biodiversity loss but not if you just leave it exposed to you know free market forces which have just pushed it more and more towards monocultures and intensification and and away from the sort of complex farming that i think most people want to see
1: Thanks so much, Guy, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. uh, And I can't wait to uh, put this episode out for, for our listeners to check out.